0: Yes, friends, welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. It is great to be with you Monday, September 25th, 2023. So for those of you who've been around for a few weeks, you know that we're in a series called Transcending Eschatology, Uh, basically a series on end time events, biblical prophecy, apocalyptic prophecy, all of that kind of stuff. So we've been having a really good time And I'm just glad that you have been along for the ride. For those of you who are brand new, uh, you may want to start a few episodes back. So we are already on episode 13. Um, I'm not going to go through each of the different episodes that we've covered. If you want to see that, you can go to the show notes and look through that. Um, But today we discuss the final set of seven and the prostitute. So here we go. Chapter one. The Seven Bowls, Chapter 2, Armageddon, and Chapter 3, The Woman and the Beast. Chapter 1, The Seven Bowls. So here we go, friends. We are on the other side of the mountain, so to speak, picking up speed, coming in hot as we get closer and closer to the final days on our planet. Revelation 13 set the stage for us, how things will shape up in the world as we near the end basically the coming global crisis we talked about the one world government only not like the un or nato or any other political alliance similar to things like that no it will be a revived religio-political power similar to the papacy during the 1260 years called the dark ages now this will be a one world power that is not only political and has political affiliations, and is able to use force to make things happen the way a country with an army or a military would, but it'll also be a religious power with a very specific set of religious beliefs. And when these two come together, the unfortunate fallout is that the religious beliefs become mandated, right? People are forced to change their belief system to match, or they're punished or even killed if they don't get in line. So to review, we discussed that the sea beast is the same power as the little horn from Daniel, aka the Catholic Church, and the beast from the land is the United States. And together, these two forces provide both the religious beliefs and the political power to impact the entire world. Now, This is the true difference between God and Satan played out in our little world, on our little planet. God is a God of love, and love is not love without what? A choice. This is why God offers us the ability to choose him or choose against him. Satan, on the other hand, has no intention of giving us a choice. He will use lies, demands, manipulation, deception, and at times brute force in order to get people to worship him. And he will use this global religio-political power at the end of time to carry out his plans. Next, in Revelation 14, we talked about the final warning, right? As this religio-political power strengthens, we hear three angels and their messages to the world. Message number one, the investigative judgment started in heaven So choose who you will worship. The second message, Babylon has fallen. This false religious system that has pulled the wool over your eyes. And the final message, those who follow Babylon and choose to take the mark will unfortunately fall along with Babylon. So that's where we're at. We know who the players are. We know what the call to action is, which is pick a side, right? and there will only be two sides to choose from. So pick one, but be fully aware that the choice you make is an eternal choice, not just a flippant choice that you can change tomorrow. It's an eternal choice that will determine your eternal fate. Because what comes next will only impact one of the two sides. So Revelation 15 to 16 describes the seven bold judgments, or what we call the seven last plagues. John opens the chapter with this. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance, seven angels holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire, and on it, Stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them, and they were singing the song of Moses, which we won't go into right now. Next, John sees that the doors of the temple in heaven were thrown wide open. There were seven angels, each with a bowl to be poured out on the earth. One of the four living beings held a bowl a golden bowl filled with the wrath of God. This bowl created smoke that filled the entire temple. And John saw that nobody would be allowed back into the temple until the seven last plagues had been poured out on the earth. Now, this is just fascinating to me, right? Because of that whole investigative judgment thing that we talked about. Some people don't believe that there is a temple in heaven. And that this judgment thing is really going on right now. And that's fine, right? Different strokes for different folks. But I wonder how verses like these are interpreted without that frame of reference. Because you see how the two seem to fit so nicely together? We just got a warning message from an angel telling us that God was beginning to judge those who had lived on the earth. And where does it take place? In the temple, of course, just like it did for ancient Israel. And now, in Revelation 16, the first thing John sees are the temple doors being thrown wide open. It's as if there were people inside, and now they're ready to come out. To me, this is just the perfect synergy that goes along with Bible prophecy, right? God has been in the temple, in heaven, doing his work, the work of the high priest, judging everyone who has ever lived and ever will live. And when he finishes, what does he do? He throws the doors wide open and he comes out. And then once he's out, it fills with smoke, which kind of suggests that you don't want to go back in there, right? And the Bible even says that nobody can go back in until things are taken care of on earth. Brilliant. That said, here come the plagues, one after the other. And remember, these plagues will only fall on those who took the mark of the beast, How do we know this? Well, because it flat out tells us. (laughs) So let's read what the first plague is and who it will impact. So, the first plague is a horrible, malignant sore. And who gets these sores? The verse tells us. It says the sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his statue or his image. Plague number two the sea became like blood and everything in the sea died. Plague number three, the springs and the rivers of water became blood. Plague number four, the sun scorched people with its fire and a blast of heat. The fifth plague, intense darkness on the throne of the beast. The beast and its people grind their teeth in anguish. Plague number six, the river Euphrates, dries up and makes way for the kings of the east. Three evil spirits that look like frogs came out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. These frogs were demonic spirits capable of doing miraculous things. And it was these things that impressed all of the leaders in the world and brought them together to do battle against God. And then finally, the seventh plague, a mighty shout from heaven saying, it is finished. Then the thunder crashed and rolled and the lightning flashed. And there was a great earthquake, the strongest that has ever happened on earth. The city of Babylon is split into three sections and the cities of the earth were turned to rubble. Every island disappeared and the mountains were leveled. There was a terrible hailstorm with hail weighing as much as a small human being. And that's it. The seven last plagues. Now, one through five are pretty straightforward, right? Most historicists believe that these are real, literal things that will happen to the earth and to the people who choose the beast sores, intense heat, darkness, and obviously the issues with the sea and the rivers turning to blood. But the sixth plague is the one that gets debated a lot, and you can see why. Futurists, want a literal fulfillment of this plague. So the river Euphrates drying up and hordes of warriors coming from the east, coming to engage in a massive battle that they refer to as the Battle of Armageddon. Now, it's interesting that as we speak, the Euphrates River is about to dry up. It's literally as dry as it's ever been. But what if it wasn't ever meant to be literal what if John was simply referring back to a historical event and using it to illustrate a future reality? So, the river Euphrates was dried up a long time ago during the reign of Babylon. Kings from the east, kings from the Media and Persian empires, Cyrus and Darius, basically diverted the mighty river which allowed it to dry up And they were able to take the city of Babylon away from the Babylonians. Now, if this information in Revelation is simply using that illustration, it's a really good one, right? Because it illustrates the way spiritual Babylon—so we've talked about spiritual Babylon, right? The church at the end of time that is doing these inappropriate things and is led by the dragon and the beast and the false prophet— it makes sense that it, at some point, will dry up, right? It'll meet its fate. It'll meet its demise. Now, God and the heavenly host will at some point come down and dry up the power of this end-time conglomerate. God and Jesus will stand as the kings of the east in this story, which makes perfect sense when you hear the way Matthew talks about the second coming. In Matthew 24, 27, he says, For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Crazy, right? (laughs) The way that these things start to fit together as you look in and out of stories and in and out of passages throughout the rest of the Bible. Chapter 2, Armageddon. So let's back up the bus a few minutes and, and talk about that sixth plague. Because I really, I want to hear have you hear a line that I skipped. So the full verse reads like this. And the demonic spirits gathered all of the rulers and all of their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. So what comes to mind when you hear that word, Armageddon? Most likely, you think about the end of time, right? World War III, the battle to end all battles, maybe, maybe a uh, atomic or a nuclear exchange, right? And all of these things lead to fear and anxiety about our future. But if this is you, just know that you came by it honestly. Most likely you heard it from your parents or a youth pastor or possibly a book or a movie. There is this futurist contribution to apocalyptic prophecy. Uh, it it kind of stems from this thing we call dispensationalism. It's a dispensational point of view, basically reading the Bible literally and trying to create real world events from the metaphors and the illustrations and the symbolism that we find in apocalyptic prophecy. So here we go. The Late Great Planet Earth, Blood Moon, The End of the Age, and of course, the Left Behind series by LaHaye and Jenkins right? These are all books that really capitalized on that dispensationalist view of prophecy. Uh, The Late Great Planet Earth was by Hal Lindsey. The End of the Age was by Pat Robertson. Um, Blood Moon, I think, was by Hal Lindsey as well. And we talked about the Left Behind series, both the books and the movies. Um, The crowning event in these books or these movies is this global battle that is said to take place at the end of time. And if you break Armageddon down in the Greek language, you can apparently link it to an ancient city called Megiddo. It's called the Valley of Jezreel. And it's said that this is where this great and final battle will happen. So once the Euphrates River dries up and the armies from the east are able to advance toward Israel, there will be this massive battle in this valley. Again the futurist interpretation is championed by the Christian evangelical movement in the United States and it's part of another movement which we call zionism it's this belief that israel plays a major role in prophecy and thus many of the end time prophecies refer to them to their land to the nations coming against them now we won't spend a lot of time on this kind of stuff but just know that the far right Christian evangelicalism that we see growing in this country today typically holds this belief. Zionism is at the heart of their political plans, not only here, but for the world in the future. So it's probably pretty obvious that I don't lean in that direction, right? You're probably wondering Then if you don't believe Armageddon is a big, massive final battle, then what do you think it is? Well, it's both and. I do believe that it will be a battle, just not in the physical sense. First, let's look at this logically. With the technology that we have right now, how do you think a battle like this would go? If the people, nations, and armies fighting in this final battle fully believed that it was a final battle, do you really think that they would choose fighter jets, tanks, M16s, handguns? Probably not, right? Given the severity of this battle and people's desire to win, My guess is that they would literally go straight for the ultimate weapons, the nuclear kind. Not the best solution, right? As it would really signal the end of all things, most likely. But people will be desperate. They won't really be thinking logically. They'll just want to win. And sometimes winning is keeping the other side from winning. Even if you lose, or even if you both perish in the process. Now this is really dark, I know but we can already see this playing out in the world around us, right? Think about Russia right now, invading Ukraine, then suddenly finding themselves in a bad place because the world is supporting the Ukraine. So what does Putin start to do? Well, he starts to bring up nuclear weapons and he starts making threats. If Putin is willing to go there in a regional conflict, why wouldn't you think this would be the case at the end of time? After five terrible plagues hit the earth and people are so polarized that they'll go to uh, extremes, maybe, right? They're more likely to go to extremes. A lot of people out there with itchy trigger fingers at that point. And I just don't see God allowing us to have the final word in this way for us to destroy ourselves with a massive nuclear exchange. So I lean more toward the traditional historicist interpretation of this battle that it's not really a physical one. Instead, it's a spiritual battle that each and every one of us must wage in our own minds. The real battle has always been between who? God and Satan. And at the end of time, it's that battle that takes precedence. The final battle isn't a land grab or one nation trying to take over another nation. The battle is spiritual. The battle is over us. It's a battle between God and Satan for the allegiance of every human being, past, present, and future. Sound familiar? We went over this in depth in the Controversy Theory series. And basically, by that time on Earth, it will be more and more obvious that there are only two sides. There are only two choices. Like the polarization that we see in our country today between Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives. There will be a spiritual polarization that is palpable, distinct, and contentious. On one side, there will be the beast, or this one-world government, right? It will be offering peace, safety, and the ability to buy and sell in a locked-down digital economy. Ultimately, the worship they are demanding doesn't seem wrong. It might just mean worshiping with them on a certain day of the week, or... You know, it might be worshiping a person, but it's okay. I'm not really worshiping the person, right? I mean, I'm just pretending. But ultimately, by doing this, you are worshiping them. You are worshiping the Pope or whoever it is who recommended the form of worship that you're worshiping. And ultimately, who's, a, who's behind all of that? It's Satan, of course, the mastermind behind the whole thing. These people will receive the mark of the beast which basically allows them to continue living, to continue buying and selling as normal. But by taking the mark of the beast, it seals them in the wrong book. Or to say it another way, it leaves them out of the right book, which is the book of life, the book that you want to be in. You want your name written in that book at the end of time. Now on the other side, there will be a small group of people following God. A group who refuses to worship the beast. This group will remain true to God and to the Bible and its teachings, and they will understand that the laws God put in place at creation have never changed, right? But this group will be outcasts in the world because they won't blindly follow the worship the way the rest of the world is. These people receive the seal of God. They are their names are written in the book of life allowing them to make it through the troublesome times and eventually live forever when Jesus returns. Now, I said I didn't believe there would be a large physical battle or a war at the end of time. So does that mean everything will be peaceful between these two groups of people? Uh, No, unfortunately not. We've talked before about Satan and his tactics. He uses all of the subtle stuff temptation, lying, manipulating, coercing. But when push comes to shove, he's going to push and shove. The same way he worked in the dark ages when he used the Catholic church or the papacy to physically persecute God's true followers. In a similar way, at the end, there will be persecution. There will be violence. Satan will use his retooled powerhouse of religious and political power to force the world to get in line and worship him, taking away people's right to their own money, hauling people into court, placing people in jail, killing people along the way, and eventually issuing a death decree for anyone not willing to get in line. Sound familiar? Think about the story of Esther in the Old Testament. Think about the stories we read in Daniel, the fiery furnace, the lion's den— All stories about having to choose God over the world's decree to worship something else. So, no physical World War III, but a spiritual battle that will be fought on the entire face of the planet. A battle within the minds of each and every person who we will choose to worship. God or the beast. And then the end will come. Before the death decree can actually be carried out. Jesus will return to show the world who is actually in control. He returns to shut down the false religion of the world and the false political strategies used to manipulate the entire planet. He returns to once again set up his government, his rule over the world, one based on love, acceptance, inclusion, and freedom to choose or to choose against. Now, Before we move into the last chapter, I do want to talk about one more thing. It's referred to as the close of probation. And again, it's one of those debated concepts that some people believe in and some people don't, but in keeping with this idea of the investigative judgment, I thought it pretty important to talk through. So here we go. It's the idea that at some specific point near the end of time, the following things will happen. One minute, we will have the ability to choose which side we're on. And the next, that choice is locked in for all time without us even knowing it. It's as if a physical door has been shut and locked. And at that point, there is no getting back through that door. There is no changing your answer. You know, the teacher has already pulled the test from your desk, so to speak. It's done. Now, I said this is a debated topic, but it really shouldn't be. When you read the book of Revelation, it seems pretty clear, and the Bible provides other examples along the way in the stories that we've all heard and read. But here are just a few references to it and the illustrations from Bible stories. So let's start with Revelation. Multiple times, the book talks about people receiving either what, the mark of the beast or the seal of God. On the surface, it might just sound like God is describing two different types of people at the end of the at the end of time, right? Those who enter heaven and those who don't. But then, chapter 14 to 16 makes it very clear that the seven last plagues only fall on one group of people, those who have the mark of the beast. Also, remember when we talked about the investigative judgment? John saw two things that really stand out. During the seventh seal, there was said to be silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then in Revelation 14, it talks about Jesus and the two angels leaving the temple in heaven to harvest the earth. And again in Revelation 15, before the seven last plagues were poured out, John sees the scene in heaven where the doors to the temple were thrown open, seven angels came out, and smoke filled the temple, suggesting that there was now nothing going on in the temple each of these references suggest that at some point, God will be done in the temple. And once that happens, all decisions have been made. This is the only way that the seven last plagues can be poured out on a specific group of people, right? In other words, that group had had to be defined before the plagues happen. The decisions had to be made and the door had to be shut. In other words, the close of probation, which locks in our votes for all time. Now, let's look at a few examples of this throughout the Bible. The obvious one is the story of the flood, right? You had this guy Noah, and he preached that the world was going to end with a flood. Right, This flood is coming, and you you have to decide if you're going to listen or not. And now, at some point, Noah and his family entered the ark. And what happened? the door closed. This is very similar to the close of probation. And for the people living in the world at that time, it was their close of probation, right? The flood didn't actually start for another full week, but for those seven days, those outside were outside and those inside were inside. The crazy thing is that in Matthew 24, 37, it actually makes this connection for us. It says, when the son of man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. Scary, right? Next, Jesus tells a parable that illustrates the close of probation. It's the parable of the 10 bridesmaids. So in this story, five were foolish and five were wise. The foolish five forgot to plan ahead and bring oil with them. And at some point they fell asleep. And when the bridegroom came in the middle of the night, They awoke, but they realized, oh no, we don't have any oil for our lamps. So what did they do? They ran back into town to grab some more. But while they were gone, the bridegroom welcomed everyone in and locked the door. Now, those are just two examples, but you see the connection, right? The Bible literally explains itself over and over and over again. It explains things and then gives examples just to make sure we get it chapter three, the woman and the beast. So in chapter 17, John has a conversation with one of the seven angels who poured out the bowls on the earth. One of the the angels that poured out one of the plagues on the earth. The angel explains, come with me. I'll show you what's in store for this one world government. But the angel doesn't call it that. Instead, the angel calls it the great prostitute or the harlot which might seem strange at first, but when you go back to the symbolism that we've discussed, it all makes sense. Remember, Jesus refers to his church as a woman, pure, committed, honorable. So what would a prostitute symbolize? Well, in real life, a prostitute goes the opposite direction. Instead of remaining pure or committed, the prostitute goes after anything and everything and a prostitute has the potential to lure people away from good, pure relationships into something altogether unholy. And this is how the angel is describing this fake church movement at the end of time, this religious and political machine that is demanding that people worship her instead of God. Similar to the prostitute, this power is luring people away, the kings and the nations of the world, with her beauty and her manipulative charm. So the angel describes her like this. A woman, riding a scarlet beast, clothed with scarlet and beautiful jewelry, she held a goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A name was on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes, and obscenities in the world she was drunk, but not with wine. She was drunk on the blood of the saints that she had killed. And John looked in utter amazement at the scene. So the angel doubled down and said, hey, I can clarify who this woman is. And the angel said, this woman is riding the beast with the seven heads and the 10 horns, the beast that was alive, but now is not, and yet will return at some point. At the end, The people not written in the book of life will be amazed by this beast that reappeared and was resurrected, and they will worship it. And just so you know, the seven heads of this beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Five are gone, one is in power, and the seventh is to come, though his reign will be brief. And this scarlet beast is the eighth, but also headed for destruction. At the end, there will be ten kings, all agreeing to give the beast and the woman power for a short time. They won't like it, but they will give in. And they will determine to fight against God and his kingdom, but they will lose. And one other thing, the woman you saw in this vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. Okay, so there you go. The explanation of the prostitute by one of the seven angels. So the angel gave us two more insights into who the beast and the woman are clues that continue to identify this persecuting power as none other than the papacy or the Catholic Church. First, this power has seven heads, which represent the seven hills where the woman rules. Now, friends, this is fascinating. We know the woman is a church just a false one. And we know that this church rules from a place built on seven hills. So if you Google city of seven hills, you'll find that Rome is the city that claims this title above all others. Rome is where the Vatican is located and where the Catholic church rules from. But here's the funny thing. Rome isn't the only city that claims this title. In fact, Wikipedia has a list of all of the different cities that claim the same title. It's insane. There are quite a few, and they're scattered across multiple continents. Now, is this a coincidence? Or is the Bible being both specific and at the same time illustrating this whole concept of the kings and the nations of the world supporting the prostitute at the end? Just a thought. Okay, the second clue comes at the end. The angel said, The woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. Now, based on what we just learned above, that city is Rome. However, there is a city within a city. Like we said, Rome houses Vatican City, a recognized city with its own rules, laws, and authority. And who is the head of that city? The Pope, a religious figure. Now, if the Catholic Church truly has this much power at the end of time, and the entire world is looking to it for spiritual guidance, both of these clues from the angel make perfect sense. Okay, let's take a quick look at these kings, right? The seventh and then the eighth. What's going on here? Well, in order to figure this out, we need to go back to Daniel. And Daniel listed for us the civilizations that would start this process. Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, Rome, And then things get a little crazy. So that was four. The fifth king is said to be Rome as the papal or spiritual conglomeration of Rome. So this would be the Catholic church that received the deadly wound in 1798. Then the sixth head is the papacy in its wounded state. So the Catholic church right now, as it slowly regains power, then the seventh head is said to be the papacy revived, so when the United States comes alongside the church in order to again give it both religious and political power over the earth. And then the eighth is said to be the sum total of the other seven, accumulation of all of the kings and kingdoms and powers and rulers of this earth, a final power that thinks it can rule the world and defeat God himself. Now, I'm not 100% sure on this whole eight kings thing, so don't hold me to it, but it just makes sense that at least for the first five or six, we know who those are. After that, it gets a little blurry, but I'm good with it. Finally, friends, we have Revelation 18. Now, I'm not going to read it. I'm not even going to try to pull out all the goodies that are in it, but I would encourage you to read through it yourself. I'll just summarize it like this. So John has just been shown the one world power that will exist at the end of time. The religious arm of it, the Catholic Church. The political arm of it, the United States. And the real energy behind all of it, Satan. So John sees that this power takes over the world and that many nations and people join them. But Revelation 18 flips the script. It shows John what ultimately will happen to this power. How the entire world will love it and then at some point they'll hate it at the same time. How people will follow along until they realize that they've been duped, that they've been fooled, that they've been lied to, and then they will turn on it, but it'll be too late. Revelation 18 is the unfortunate reality that will exist at the very end of time when people find out the popular thing wasn't the right thing and that they could have stood up against it, but they chose not to people start to realize the eternal nature of that decision and they become angry to the point where they turn against the very power they believed held the answers to life's problems. Let's land the plane. So as we approach the end of the book of Revelation, two things are going to happen. First, things are going to get really dark, right? Because we need to understand what it will be like at the end of time. We need to learn more about this power that's going to control the earth. And we need to see how diabolical it actually gets. Second, it will get better. As we approach the very end of the book, we will start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. We see that evil won't triumph over good. And we see the brighter future that God has in store for us, all of us who choose him. That's what's up next week, friends, the conclusion and the good things that are to come. Until then, everyone, have a great week. Thanks again for joining us on the journey. And as always, keep transcending human.